And I think Lewis gives us a lens for looking at the world. Sure, there are many people out there who seem far from God, but maybe there's a future C.S. Lewis there somewhere who God is going to turn around and use to great effect amongst the world. Today on First Person, a conversation about the life of C.S. Lewis with Dr. Alistair McGrath. Welcome to our interview. I'm Wayne Shepherd. We'll get started talking with Dr. McGrath in just a moment, but let me remind you that anytime you'd like to follow up on what you hear on First Person, you can easily do that by visiting our website, firstpersoninterview.com. Additional links and information is there, as well as a complete audio archive of past interviews and a schedule of what's coming up in the weeks ahead. So please look us up online at firstpersoninterview.com, and you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash firstpersoninterview. I recently interviewed Dr. McGrath for the audio edition of his new book, C.S. Lewis, A Life, Eccentric Genius, Reluctant Prophet. Well, I learned so much about Lewis, I didn't know that I turned around and asked Dr. McGrath if he would join me on this program. This new biography is in print from Tyndale and released also as an audiobook by Oasis Audio, and I think you'll enjoy either version. Dr. McGrath lives in the UK, and I reached him on the phone and began by asking him what motivated him to write this new biography. Well, I'd always loved reading Lewis, and I'd got a huge amount of reading him, and I use him regularly in my own talks and books. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful really to look at him in some detail, because this year, 2013, marks the 50th anniversary of his death. So I thought the time was right to reappraise him. And so this biography really is about where we are on Lewis now. It really tries to bring us completely up to date and give us the best possible picture of this man. Was there a thread that you were following? Was there something you discovered about Lewis that you kept uh, uncovering as you dug deeper and deeper? There were several threads. Um, I began to have uh, have a sense that the traditional way of looking at things wasn't quite right. And one of the one of the reasons I gained this perception was that uh, in preparation for the bi- biography, I wrote. I read everything Lewis wrote in chronological order. I did that really to try and work out how his style developed, but also how his thought was developing. And I began to notice that although Lewis himself describes his conversion as taking place in 1929, that really, when you read everything from that year, there's no obvious sign of anything happening at all. And I just began to think to myself, something is wrong here. Maybe we need to do some rethinking. And there are other places where I just felt, look, we really do need to look at things very, very closely all over again. And so this biography really is opening up questions, re-examining things, and as I was saying, trying to give the best possible interpretation of this remarkable man. I read that section about his conversion with much interest because uh, was it a matter of him being an absent-minded professor that he got his own date wrong, do you think? Well, he's terribly bad about dates. In fact, for a few months in 1940, Lewis was uh, vice president of Magdalen College, at Oxford College, and he had the responsibility of arranging rooms for meetings. And it was chaotic. Uh, they were double booked. They weren't booked at all. And eventually they, they brought in Lewis's brother, Warney, to try and sort things out. So I'm afraid Lewis wasn't really very good about dates. And it may well be that he remembers very, very well what it was that led him to come back to God, but doesn't actually correlate this with the external world of days and times. Mm -hmm. 
He moved from being an atheist to believing there was a God and then later became a Christian. That's right, and both those transitions are very, very interesting. Lewis was an atheist as a younger man. In fact, he was a very aggressive atheist. And he had a correspondence with one of his Christian friends, and his friend did the best he could to convert him, but Lewis wasn't having it. But as we track Lewis's thinking, you can see him becoming increasingly disillusioned with atheism. It doesn't make all that much sense, and it doesn't satisfy. And so his conversion to belief in God is a landmark, but it's not an end point because Lewis keeps thinking and he begins to realize that just believing in some kind of generic God isn't good enough. And he then makes a transition to believing in a very specifically Christian way of understanding God. There's a great lesson there for us, isn't there? Well, it's a lot there. I think the story of Lewis is a great encouragement for any parent who's got atheist children. You know, Lewis, you know, made that transition. Others can make them as well. But also, I think it reminds us that we need people like Lewis to say, look, Christianity makes sense. It has a deep appeal. Atheism actually isn't everything it's made out to be. And there is lots that can be said to atheists. And Lewis helps us to say them. I enjoyed every part of the biography. Uh, I learned so much, beginning with his early life. Now, we think of him as being an Oxford Don. Uh, We don't think of him as having roots in Ireland. You describe him as the ambivalent Irishman. Well, that's right, and it probably helps I'm Irish myself, so I understand some of the cultural background that Lewis is coming from. And in Ireland, there's a cultural stereotype, which is the son who leaves home and never comes back, and Lewis fits that perfectly. But you're right, Lewis Lewis has an Irish background. It affects his language, it affects the landscapes of Narnia, and Lewis kept going back to Ireland year after year. He saw himself as being Irish, even though, as you rightly say, he was an Oxford on. Now, his relationship with his father was not good. Once his father, his mother died at an early age uh, in his life, but when his father sent him away to an English boarding school, that that damaged the relationship you write about. Well, it did. And I think we have to be very fair to his father here. His father thought he was doing the right thing. His father was convinced that this would be a way of getting his son on a track that would lead to a secure job. And I think everything points to Lewis's father really having a son's best interests at heart. But Lewis had just lost his mother to cancer. Uh, He was bereft, and he was sent off to boarding school in a place he didn't know at all. And really, you can begin to see the alienation between father and son developing from this moment onwards. And that, I'm afraid, continued for the next 10 years of Lewis's life. As things got more and more complex, he became more and more angry with his father. And his father actually continued to support Lewis, even though Lewis was unemployed after he graduated from Oxford. And I think that Albert Lewis, that's Lewis's father, really, really needs more sympathetic consideration than many have given him. And his older brother, you mentioned his name, Warney, he, they were very close growing up. But then uh, there was uh, some years where they were not uh, close at all. Well, that's right. Uh, I think there are two things here. One was simply that uh, Warney uh, joined the army. He served in the First World War, and then he was posted overseas. And Lewis actually didn't see very much of his brother at all. But secondly, um, Warney did feel that Lewis 
misrepresented his time at some English schools. Warren had been to some of these schools as well and felt that Lewis just didn't fit into their culture. The fault lay in Lewis, not in the schools. Mm. So there was a bit of tension between Lewis and his brother as well. But then later in life, of course, they came back together. And that's a wonderful story. Um, This happens in the very early 1930s where Lewis and his brother put money together, they buy a house together, and it's almost as if they're recreating their childhood home in Belfast, but this time in Oxford. Mm. And Lewis speaks about feeling very settled, feeling very stable as a result of this. And, you know, maybe that intensely stable environment helped Lewis to write the books he did. And later in life, uh, Warney struggled with alcoholism, and that certainly had an effect on their relationship, although they lived together, didn't they? Well, they stayed together. I mean, Lewis and his brother were still together when Lewis died, and Warney remained in the same house till he died. Well, you've written such an extensive account of his life, and we're only going to touch just a few of the highlights here today. But I do want to ask you about, uh, partic- in particular, the First World War when he was a young man, and uh, talk about the, the circumstances he was in and, and his service. Well, Lewis won a place at Oxford University. It's a, it was a very, very great honor, and he was due to take up his place in 1917. And, of course, the World War was raging around him, and Lewis suddenly realized he would not be able to begin his studies properly without going to war. And so he undertook military training at Oxford, and then he was posted to France, where he served in a British uh, army unit close to the Belgian border. He was wounded. He was invalided out of the army. And all of this really, I think, traumatized him. He talks very little about the First World War in any of his writings. And my feeling is it's simply because he had such a terrible time, he couldn't bear to relive the memories. Mm. Then he goes to Oxford and begins this career, which is going to see him staying at Oxford for 35 years. Mm -hmm. And by the time of the Second World War, he was right on the edge, age-wise, of of being called into service or not, although he did serve in what became known as the Home Guard. Exactly. I mean, he he was a a soldier in the reserve, and he would patrol Oxford at the dead of night. (laughs) And it's a very romantic thing altogether. But Lewis was frightened that he'd be called up all over again. But as you were saying, in the end, that never happened. It must have been quite a picture to... uh to see C.S. Lewis uh, marching around Oxford in the middle of the night as, as a member of the <laughs> <Yes>. Home Guard. <laughs> when did he begin to come into his own at Oxford? When, when did he begin to receive recognition? Well, his first academic book, uh, The Allegory of Love, published in 1936, uh, was very well received. Uh, It won a very prestigious award from the British Academy. It was seen as breaking new ground. And if we look at internal Oxford University documents, we can see Lewis being given increasing recognition and increasing prestige. So I think his career as a scholar really begins in 1936. And it just went on and on from there. He had a remarkable reputation as a scholar, but an even better reputation as a communicator. The lecture rooms of Oxford were full of people when Lewis lectured in English literature. We'll learn more about the life of C.S. Lewis through biographer Alistair McGrath coming up today on First Person. Next week, a report on last year's Freedom Climb, the women representing Operation Mobilization who hiked up Mount Kilimanjaro. 
We'll also look ahead to their upcoming climb of part of Mount Everest to benefit women and children who are the victims of sexual exploitation and trafficking. The Freedom Climb takes place next month, and you can sponsor one or more climbers by going to firstpersoninterview.com and clicking on the banner, The Freedom Climb. Learn what you can do to help at firstpersoninterview.com. My guest today on First Person is Dr. Alistair McGrath, the author of a new biography of C.S. Lewis, Eccentric Genius, Reluctant Prophet, published by Tyndale. And it's a great pleasure to have you on First Person, Dr. McGrath. I, I really appreciate it. It's great to be here. Now, you might expect that since I'm in radio, I'm most interested in those BBC talks that Lewis gave. And I want you to tell the full story of what happened there. In 1940, Lewis wrote a little book called The Problem of Pain. And actually, that's still in print, and I think it's still one of the better responses to pain. The BBC noticed this book and thought, here is someone who knows how to talk at a very accessible level. And even better, he's not a clergyman, so we don't have to worry about denominational issues at all. And they were looking for somebody during the Second World War who'd be the voice of faith for the British nation. They didn't want to choose a clergyman because that would raise denominational questions. So they took a risk and said, let's ask Lewis. And they gave him a tryout. They said, let's do four talks and see how they go. It was expanded to five very quickly, but they were a huge success. Lewis turned out to have a very, very good speaking voice. And he held an audience over the time of the broadcasts, and the BBC were thrilled with him. He went on to do three more series of talks for them. So he became one of the most familiar voices in Britain, and it made his name in the country. Why do you think the audience was so receptive to his message? This is when radio was in its heyday. Uh, of course, the, the war years, um, television was yet to happen, really. But why was the audience so receptive of what he had to say? Well, I think there are two reasons. One of them was that Lewis spoke as a layman. He was one of them. He made it absolutely clear, I'm on the same level as you. I'm talking to you as one of you. And the, the level at which Lewis pitched those radio talks was just right. It, it really was accessible. He was engaging. And he answered the questions people wanted to talk about. But secondly, and I think this is even more important, people began to realize there was a depth to Lewis, that actually there was more to him than these talks, that actually they were seeing, they were seeing the surface of something that was very, very deep. There was more there. And as a result, people began to say, let's read this man, Lewis. And of course, the book Mere Christianity is the published version of those radio talks. And I would say it's still one of his best books. I believe the book came out in 1952. Um, That's right. It was a late revision of the broadcast talks. Lewis wanted to be sure he got it right. All right. And, and you write, and I, I, I found some comfort and some humor in, in how he uh, related to his producer on radio. <laughs> Yes, his producer um, was clearly a very forthright man, and uh, he was very pleased with most of Lewis set of talks, but then said, look, the second one was turgid, you know, really pretty dull, you've got to do better. But he was wise enough to say, and we'd like you to do another series at the same time. And Lewis, therefore, could take the criticism because he knew he had a new contract. <laughs> a good producer is never satisfied, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> Including the producer who may be listening to our conversation right now. <laughs> 
Well, there are so many things, again, to touch on in Lewis's life. Let, let me take you to the Inklings, this, mm. this group, this unofficial, really, group. It didn't, didn't even really have a name of the Inklings officially, did it? No, it was just a group that gathered initially around Lewis and Tolkien, and it just began to expand as people so we gravitated in. Lewis called it the Inklings. Other people called it other things. But basically, it was a group which was dedicated to talking about Christianity and literature. And the reason it's so important, I think, is that it gave people a chance to read things and have a very talented group of people commenting. And for me, the most important outcome of the Inklings is the trilogy we now call The Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. because that is the big book that came out of that group. But not everybody in the group was a fan of The Lord of the Rings. Oh, no, no. Tolkien had some very severe critics who couldn't stand them. (laughs) But nevertheless, that helped Tolkien to improve them and make them even better. Talk more about the relationship between Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. It it had its moments as well. It did. It's a very important relationship. They first meet in the late 1920s, and they begin to talk about literature. They begin to get interested in each other's work. But let's remember, this is 1928. No one has ever heard of Lewis. No one has ever heard of Tolkien. These are two unknowns talking about potential books they're going to write. And Lewis reads something Tolkien's written and thinks this is wonderful and encourages him to keep going. And that really is a key theme of the Lewis-Tolkien relationship. Lewis encourages Tolkien, who was a perfectionist, to keep going and get things published. And I would say that Lewis was the midwife to the Lord of the Rings. Hmm. But Tolkien helped Lewis too. And I think the, the big impact that Tolkien had on Lewis's life was in helping him to make that transition from believing in God to believing in Jesus Christ and God as we know him in Christ. Because Tolkien was able to say, look, He used the word myth. We might now say something like grand narrative. But the basic point is the Christian grand narrative is about the the imaginative amplification of faith that gives you a whole new way of thinking about God, the world, and yourself. And once Lewis saw that, there was no turning back. He embraced Christianity. And I think it's why Lewis remains such a powerful apologist for Christianity to this day. And... We must talk about Narnia. Um, how how did he first divulge to anyone that he wanted to write this this children's uh, book? Well, the story that Maureen, who is Mrs. Moore's daughter, tells is that Lewis came down to breakfast one day in the family home and said, "I'm going to write a children's story," and we think this was dated about 1940. And uh, they were just astonished. You know, you, you don't have any children. In fact, you don't even like children. Why do you want to write a children's book? <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's pouring cold water on an idea. But Lewis stuck with the idea because he could see that maybe writing a children's story would enable him to portray the Christian faith in a way that would connect up with people who were alienated by Sunday school associations. So he saw this as not simply writing for children, but writing through children to a wider audience. And it it just went on from there. And you make the distinction in your biography, as he did, that it was not an imaginary world, but an imaginative world. What's the difference? Absolutely. An imaginative world is something that the imagination builds on. It's real, but it has this deep potential to draw and attract. 
imaginary is something you make up. What Lewis is saying is that the imagination is not arbitrary. It's guided by some deeper instincts implanted by God. And for Lewis, an imaginative world is an amplification of our own world to bring out more clearly the nature of God's involvement in the world and what he wants to do with us. Well, as we track the life of C.S. Lewis, uh, we come to what you call a very strange marriage, his marriage to Joy David's, Davidman, and we can, we can refer our listeners to the book for the details of that. But talk about, just for a moment, uh, Lewis's last uh, years of his life. What were they like? They were very sad. Lewis, obviously, was getting older, um, and he had a number of medical issues, and gradually these began to build up. And from about 1961, Lewis was really quite an ill man. He had kidney problems. He had heart problems. Um, Increasingly, Lewis had to rely on blood transfusions to get rid of the toxins that were building up in his bloodstream and which just couldn't be got rid of by any other means. Remember that kidney dialysis was still some distance in the future. And it was at this stage that he met Walter Hooper. And Walter remembers coming to see Lewis one summer afternoon in 1963 and found him collapsed with a cup of tea in his hand and was in a very, very bad way. He was hallucinating. It's all to do with these toxins in his bloodstream. And Lewis had to be hospitalized. He nearly died, but he recovered. But really, it was obvious to everyone he was never going to get properly better. So the last few months of Lewis's life were, well, were pathetic in the, in the right sense of that word. And that is probably the most depressing section of the biography, I'm afraid. So listeners need to be aware of that. There is no good news in that part of the biography. It's a story of a man, in effect, knowing he's going to die and being ready for it, but actually being in, a, in, in quite a bad way. Well, when all is said and done, when you consider the life of C.S. Lewis from beginning to end, for you, the biographer, what, what's the lesson learned? Well, the lesson learned is that Christianity changes lives. And Lewis was dealt a hand, if you like. And the biography is the story of how he wrestled with what he'd been given and made the best of it, but not in his own strength, but in the strength he discovered when he came to faith in God. And as I look back on Lewis's life, I think he's an example in many ways. He shows us how God is able to turn a life around. Remember, Lewis was an atheist and do great things in and through him. And I think Lewis gives us a lens for looking at the world. Sure, there are many people out there who seem far from God, but maybe there's a future C.S. Lewis there somewhere who God is going to turn around and use to great effect amongst the world. I agree. This new biography of Lewis by Alistair McGrath is a great read, very thorough and insightful. Many lessons there for us as we follow Christ and learn about God through the writings of C.S. Lewis. The book is C.S. Lewis, A Life, Eccentric Genius, Reluctant Prophet by Dr. Alistair McGrath, published by Tyndale and available in audio from Oasis Audio. We'll put additional information about Dr. McGrath and his book at our website, firstpersoninterview.com. Just follow the links provided at firstpersoninterview.com. And comments and suggestions can be posted to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash firstpersoninterview. Next week, learn about a group of women from Operation Mobilization who are about to climb a part of Mount Everest for a very worthy cause. We'll talk about the Freedom Climb next week. 
Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for listening to First Person. First Person.